1: And most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery.
0: There's another important component to us as humans, and that is our level of motivation and building habits for recovery. And I think that's an important role that therapists play in the rehab phase for a person and really talking with them about it, the survivor, if they understand, if they're struggling to understand, it's time to bring in the caregivers. Where is this person going when they leave our level of care? And talking about the importance of establishing whatever this habit routine is towards recovery and explaining clearly the benefits of getting in the groove now. I would like to review the topics that we covered last episode when the the overarching topic was learned non-use. Mm-hmm. And within that episode, we were kind of all over the place, but in in very important ways for helping people <laughs> understand the difference between stroke and TBI. For example, you clarified that, you described the four phases of stroke recovery. As identified by you, we talked about learned non use. We talked a lot about what learned non use is and various factors that negatively impact learned non use, like impaired sensation, proprioception, tactile input, hemian attention, and visual field cuts. And we talked about the effects of. Too much intensity, so too much too soon. What that, what the negative effects on the brain are, and what that looks like. And we spoke briefly about mirror therapy as an intervention. So th- those are the topics that we covered. And I'm curious to know what you feel like you left out.
1: Well, I, I want to just add something to something that you just said, which oh, is. Okay. Um, Every form of acquired brain injury, and we define that as a mechanical thing that happens to the brain. It's not like Parkinson's. It's not progressive. It's not like Alzheimer's that's progressive. It's not a chemical cascade that happens that causes those two issues. It's a, a mechanical thing. You get hit in the head, you have a coup contra coup from a car accident. Um, and a stroke. It could be an internal mechanical thing, like a stroke where where there's a, a thrombus or an embolus that blocks an artery that leads to the brain or in the brain, um, or uh, or a hemorrhagic event where uh, you have a busted artery. Now, for all of those that are acquired brain injury, including ischemic stroke, that's a block stroke. All of the phases and all of the learn non-use, and all of, we talked about how you can have an area that's dead, and then there's an area that surrounds it called the penumbra. All of those are exactly the same, except with hemorrhagic stroke. Hemorrhagic stroke doesn't even have that peri-infarct penumbra area that comes back. It's completely, let's put it this way, there's more kinship between a car accident where you hurt your head and you hurt your brain and an ischemic stroke than there is with an ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. That's how different they are. And hemorrhagic stroke is sort of off on its own. It represents about 10%, 12% of all strokes, maybe as much as 15%. But uh, yeah, so I just wanted to add that to, to what you had said.
0: Well, since you added that and you started this conversation, I... Are there some down the rabbit hole we go? Yes. Here we go. (laughs) That's why we're doing this. Are there some very specific differences in terms of functional outcomes? Like, I'm curious to know why you feel the need to really define the differences or call up attention to the fact that they're very different. And so I would like to understand that better.
1: Well, like, one of the ones that we talked about was, look, every, every book, including like My Stroke of Insight by Jill Bolt-Taylor, there's a whole bunch of them um, that are, are written by people that had hemorrhagic strokes. Hemorrhagic stroke is weird. I used to do this thing in my CEU courses. Okay, God herself comes down and says to you, Deb, I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is you got to have a stroke. I'm sorry. I'm and God. <laughs> so there's the bad news. You got to have a stroke. Here's the good news. I'm going to give you a choice between a hemorrhagic or an ischemic stroke, a bleed or a block. Now let me just ask you, Deb, if you had to make that choice in this alternate universe of mine, which one would you? Which one would you choose?
0: Well, I feel like I might know a little too much.
1: Well, go with it. What do you got? What do you know? What do you think? Well,
0: it seems like people who have bleeds tend to have better outcomes. So, I think I would choose a bleed, although I know that's not true 100% of the time. So, I think a bleed might be the way to go.
1: Okay. Well, you've made your choice. (laughs) Now you got to live with it. I'm not God. That's the good news. Um, No. So, um the The problem with hemorrhagic stroke, a bleed stroke, is you have a larger chance of dying. Oh, so you're true you're right uh, the um, the outcomes are better. The trajectory is just much steeper. They have a larger uh, subacute phase, so there's more chance of stuff coming back. Um, a lot of the early stuff, and I'm no expert here, but it happens when it bleeds into the brain and there's pressure between the skull and the brain. and then as they release that pressure, um, they get remarkable outcomes if they survive the stroke in the first place. So usually when I do talks, I have half the class say I want hemorrhagic and half the ones say I would I perf- It's almost like a gambling thing, you know, well, if I survive, I want a hemorrhagic stroke, but anyway, so that's, that's one thing is the trajectory for hemorrhagic stroke is much steeper. And there's so many books out there by stroke survivors. And I, I kind of don't like it. Um, you know, any, I should say, any recovery should be absolutely celebrated, whether it's hemorrhagic or ischemic. But they're often written by hemorrhagic stroke survivors who have this, they were, you know, hemorrhagic stroke is just devastating. Yeah. But then they make if they survive, they make this remarkable recovery often, not always, as you pointed out. Yeah. And so when people write books, they're almost always stroke survivors who had hemorrhagic strokes. They had this great outcome where, you know, they said I couldn't speak and I couldn't move and it was horrible. And there were things hanging out of my head. And then now I'm almost perfect. You know, Jill Bolt Taylor is like the queen of this. She wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. The main difference is this peri-infarct area. I keep going on about it, but the penumbra. In a hemorrhagic stroke, you don't have the penumbra. In a ischemic stroke, you have a penumbra. And so, I would say just generally, there's more chance of learned non-use coming into a a ischemic stroke.
0: Okay. So, now I have more questions formulating.
1: (laughs) All right. So, maybe because we had debated whether this should be a separate episode of just clarifications, but yeah, maybe. So, what do you got? What's next?
0: Well, if there's no Penumbra, are you saying that there's not that area of dead brain tissue? Right. Or it's
1: it's like every other kind of brain injury, including like a car accident or getting even a gunshot wound, has this area that right after the injury, there's a metabolic soup in there. With a stroke, it's often occluded and it's not getting the blood it needs. And then there's this swelling that happens in the area. And that keeps that area stunned. Uh, And we sort of went over this last time. It becomes unstunned once they clear through the uh, clot or there's enough healing that the metabolic soup, the cytokinines and the enzymes and all this garbage that's built up goes out the cerebral spinal fluid and, and gets flushed out in their urine the next day or whatever. That whole aspect of things doesn't happen in hemorrhagic stroke. Now, I'm right on the edge of my pay grade at this point. So, I don't want to talk about it. Maybe this will be like <laughs> clarifications for the clarification episode. But a hemorrhagic stroke does not have a penumbra. And so, there's nothing to come back. There's much less chance of learned non-use. And when they do come back, they have this much steeper trajectory in a good way of recovery.
0: So, does that mean on the opposite side of the coin – if they have complete loss of use of a side of their body, does that mean the chance that it will come back is less?
1: In a ischemic stroke?
0: No, in a hemorrhagic stroke.
1: No, we'd expect better recovery all mm-hmm. the way around.
0: So when there isn't better recovery, do you have an explanation for that?
1: For for hemorrhagic stroke or for any kind of stroke? Hemorrhagic stroke. Um. Yeah. I mean, the damage was just so devastating. Okay, Neurons love blood. Yeah. (laughs) Unless that blood crosses over the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier is a fancy way of saying the endothelium of the arterial wall. So far as I read it, that's the way I look at it. So as soon as it busts open that blood vessel, it bathes the, the neurons in blood and it kills them. Okay. And then there's this cascading effect of dead neurons then create this other metabolic soup that neurons don't like. Neurons love neurons and they love blood unless the blood touches them and the neurons die and then they don't like it so much. So, yeah, I mean, okay. you can have, don't get me wrong, you can have an absolutely devastating hemorrhagic stroke where recovery is is going to be worse than an ischemic stroke. I'm just saying, from a statistical standpoint, you have much larger chance of of a more full recovery with a hemorrhagic stroke than an ischemic stroke.
0: Thank you. I'm just. I, I'm thinking of my own experience working in a certified stroke center. Seeing, you, I'm sure you know that I have seen all levels of infarct, and I know people who work in those types of settings do too, and. I think just clarify if I want clarification, someone else likely wants clarification as well.
1: You know, we did mention that there's an old saying about brain injury. If you've seen one brain injury, you've seen one brain injury. One brain injury. So yeah, yeah. they're gonna it's a cornucopia of craziness. And it is. You know, it's a hundred billion neurons. Oh, I'm sorry. The 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 number that really we should talk about when we talk about the number of neurons in the brain is 86 billion. Apparently, that's more accurate, and that's fine. I always liked 100 billion because it was very round, but it's more like 86 billion. There's a quadrillion synapses. There's a ton of stuff going on in the brain. Um, Your brain is unique, like literally unique. There's no other brain like yours or mine or anybody else, even if you're an identical twin because there's the... The environmental stuff that happens to your brain so of course every brain injury is going to be different and it hits different parts of the brain and there's tons of arteries there's tons of of blood vessels in the in the brain so it all depends on a million different factors so yeah i mean you know this better than i do when you get into that acute phase you can find all kinds of stuff and all kinds of people that have had all kinds of brain injuries yeah Well, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Off the hook. Okay, so I did have some clarifications. And I learned something really cool that you might be interested in. So, I said that the reason that I had written into my uh, second edition of my book hyperacute, acute, acute, subacute, and chronic was that it was super important to know when to put the pedal to the metal, when to fight against learned non-use, how important the subacute phase was, and all that stuff. And I went to radiological articles because in radiology, there's certain chemical – chemicals that are released, some um, neurotropic factors that are released during different epochs. And so, I looked at that stuff. I looked at neurology, and I just came up with this chart that made sense to me. It was hyperacute, the first 24 hours, acute, the first seven days, subacute, seven days or three months. And that was like the really important, you know, get rid of learn, non-use, any kind of movement they have, celebrate it and do it. Um, Don't let learn non-use get in during the subacute phase. And then chronic phase was three months for the rest of their life. Okay. Um, And I said that the reason it frustrated me so much was that our lab would publish these articles where we were incredibly inconsistent. We'd say, oh, we work with subacute stroke survivors in this study, seven days to three months. The next study would be, we work with subacute stroke survivors, and it was within the first year. What I didn't mention was it wasn't just our lab making this mistake. Everybody was making this mistake. And to this day, you still find this incredible inconsistency with that. The other thing that I just found out, though, there was an article that we'll put in the show notes. It was was from the International Journal of Stroke. And I'll tell you the organization that did in just a second. In 2017, came out with a chart. It's the first one that I was aware of. And it said hyperacute, just like my book said, uh, first 24 hours, acute, the first seven days. And then they have subacute broken up into two categories, early subacute, which is my definition, seven days to three months. And then they claim that there's a late subacute, which was uh, three to six months, which is kind of ridiculous because it could be, you may as well say three months to a year. I mean, you can, that's pretty arbitrary. And then they say that six months on is chronic. Here's the problem this organization that did it was called the National Health and Medical Research Council, and they are Australian. They were established in 1926, a year before my dad was born. And um, it's this big Australian government agency. They published that in 2017. I published mine in 2013. Thank you very much. I'll move on. I just want to give myself kudos for beating them, this huge organization, by a few years.
0: Well, I would like to put my two cents worth into this. Yeah. (laughs) This all brings me back to OT school and research and working definitions. It's all part of research, isn't it? Just coming up with a working definition. So, since you did this first and... You're not splitting hairs, really. You're you're acknowledging that there is some variance in that subacute phase. And I think that's important. I think that's important for survivors to know. I think it's important for caregivers and clinicians. I think it's really important for everybody, actually, to be aware of the possibilities that are still available for a person.
1: We want a larger subacute phase, because that means there's more time to do uh, the easy kind of recovery, the natural spontaneous recovery that we talked about last time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, thank you for clarifying that.
1: Absolutely. That's interesting. So I said, I suggested that since learned non-use got its claws into the brain during the subacute phase, that that takes the small area of infarct and gives it a huge footprint on the brain and that that part of the brain, a really large area of the brain will lie fallow for the rest of that person's life. That's not true. Okay. And in fact, a lot of our studies were in chronic people. So this is after Learn Non-Use had gotten in there. And we did uh, a lot of chronic studies. So people post a year, post five years, post 10 years, 15 years, we didn't care. We would bring them into a chronic study. And we found that if you throw everything in the kitchen sink, like a lot of forced use or constraint-induced therapy or a lot of e or a combination of things, um, that, that Area of the brain will reestablish itself. My point only was that it's a lot easier to do this work during the subacute when those neurons are fresh and still have a lot of connections than it is five years later when there's a lot of pruning from the neurons, when um, they have spasticity, soft tissue shortening, and they have learned non use already baked into it. So if you're going to do it, try to celebrate any and all movements, even if they're non-functional during the subacute phase. But you can go back. Clearly, you can go back with chronic people, throw everything in the kitchen sink at that area of the brain that's been lying fallow, and you will get them to pop. Thank you for letting me clarify those two things.
0: You're welcome. And I'm, I'm glad that you did because my OT brain just kicked in. Yeah. And when you were talking about some of the battles that people have to face if they wait too long and they get into that chronic phase with the spasticity and the tissue shortening, there's there's another important component to us as humans, and that is our level of motivation and building habits for recovery. And I think that's an important role that therapists play in the rehab phase for a person and really talking with them about it, the survivor, if they understand. If they're struggling to understand, it's time to bring in the caregivers. Where is this person going when they leave our level of care? And talking about the importance of establishing all of whatever this habit routine is towards recovery and explaining clearly the benefits of getting in the groove now.
1: I I wonder if you're saying that the caregiver should be brought in immediately during the subacute phase when a lot of this stuff is happening, but you might also be talking and maybe I missed it um, about the chronic stroke survivor, the chronic brain injured person who still has this immense potential because a portion of the brain hasn't been used. And that's where the caregiver can come in and get, say, get back on your horse. Is that kind of where you're, where you're coming?
0: Well, I am coming from that. I'm coming from the fact that we all know that if the sooner you build a habit, and get into a habit, the easier it is to carry that habit over. And I th- think sometimes, as therapists, we might struggle to help somebody understand the importance of that. And it can just be because we're busy, we're too new at being a practitioner, we don't have that clinical confidence yet. But I know something that happened for me, the longer I practiced and the more experience I had working with survivors. Um, the easier it was for me to explain to caregivers, to explain to the survivor, look at this is, this is what you have to do. And how would you like to set this up? And I think people who work in subacute facilities or inpatient rehab facilities, they have the client for that set amount of, t- that's something important to get established right away because it's, you know, when you're sick, it's hard to be motivated when you don't see change occurring rapidly the way that you would like
1: it to it's hard to stay motivated yeah and when you're chronic i mean where's the motivation there right i mean you know you've been living with this pathology and uh you're kind of settled into your life and then somebody knocks on the door and says hey you know we want to throw a whole ton of repetitions at that and you're both sides because you're you're bilaterally involved and the, the guy's just like come on man i don't you know i don't need any of this hassle in my life i'm so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All yeah. kinds of challenges there.
0: So, since you were just talking about that penumbra area and the spontaneous recovery, there is a question from a listener about that, the the penumbra and the the dendrites that get pruned and all of that. But then when you spoke about neuroplasticity and then they come back online, what happens to those dendrites? Can you talk a little bit more about the... The actual brain part of that during am I maybe I'm not asking my question during
1: learn non-use. What's yeah. happening in the brain?
0: Yeah, like with what happens to those. Yeah, there's like this little space of of information time that we don't understand.
1: Yeah, so I I was always fascinated. You always think of neuroscientists as not very artistic, and yet the term that they use is a pruning of the dendritic arbor, which is just like beautifully you know they're they're pruning dendrites what happens to them absolutely i don't know i mean they 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 maybe they break off and go into the cerebral spinal fluid and they get taken out um i'm sure there's a waste product of some sort maybe they shrink in size maybe um there's a lot of Chemicals that go between in the synaptic junction between neurons. So maybe there's something there, there's a a missing chemical. But as I mentioned, you know, the reason that the brain does it is because it uses a ton of glucose and uses a ton of oxygen and produces a ton of waste. And so if you're not going to use this portion of your brain, sir, uh, this is your brain talking, sir. If you're not going to use this portion of the brain, we're going to shut it down because it's a waste of our energy. It's a waste of blood, and uh, and so that's that's kind of what happens. I'm not sure. See, are you allowed to say who it was that? Because that's our first listener question.
0: It who is. Was it? Who was
1: it? I demand to know. It was Ingrid Kanics. Wow, what a great name.
0: I know. She's an occupational therapist and an architect. Get right out. She designs playgrounds, inclusive playgrounds.
1: She's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's almost as crazy as you being an OT and also having uh, a degree in anthropology, which, you know, we haven't really (laughs) talked about, but we're going (laughs) to. There's so much crazy stuff going on around here. There's some crazy stuff. I have a degree in communication and... Uh, By the end of this episode, you might think I need to give that one back. But uh, can, if we're going to call it an episode, let me just introduce your
0: book then as well.
1: Oh, you're gonna introduce the book on this this episode?
0: Well, it's about. I I really want to call attention to the learn non-use charts. I think
1: they're valuable. Let me ask you another question. Okay. While you're doing that, do I need to be here? No. Good.
0: So another thing that I want to mention in this episode is Pete's book, Stronger After Stroke, Your Roadmap to Recovery. And I have here with me the third edition. And this, I think, is a must read for any clinician, any stroke survivor, and any family member, loved one, caregiver. And since we started off the last episode with learned non-use, I want to call your attention to pages 87 and 88. And Pete has great diagrams on these pages. He's got a diagram of how learned non-use occurs. And then there's another diagram that explains how to reverse learned non-use. And... It's just, I think diagrams make everything a little bit more easy to understand. So that's Stronger After Stroke, Your Roadmap to Recovery by Peter G. Levine.
1: Okay, Deb, thanks so much for plugging my book. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com that's noggins the word and spelled out neurons at gmail.com if you like what you heard please share this podcast with others you think will benefit also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review we'll catch you next time on noggins and neurons stroke and TBI recovery simplified.